So the first reading, Genesis 2, 4 to 25. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic aromatic resin and onyx is also there. The name of the second river is Gion. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of a man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. And the second reading is 1 Corinthians 11, uh, 1 to 16. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is a man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, 
so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is for her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we, do have, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Hello, it's great to be with you, but let's pray that God would give us understanding of his word. Heavenly Father, all of us are equally small before you, equally broken before you, and equally in need of you. And so, Lord, we pray that you might make us equally open to your word, that we might hear it, that we might obey it, and that we might even equally rejoice in who you have made us to be. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is a difficult passage that the Lord has put before us today in 1 Corinthians 11. The text is difficult and complex. The issues that it raises are difficult and complex. And our culture makes it difficult and complex for us to accept what they have to say. In fact, does anyone else want to have a go tonight? I'm happy to just kind of, you know... Uh, but, you know, uh, my principle when it, when it comes to passages like this one is, is, is twofold. One is to say, if anyone is going to say something stupid about 1 Corinthians 11 and then have to apologise for it afterwards, it might as well be me, the senior minister. Uh, but second of all, this is good. This is a good thing. It is our regular practice here to work our way through the Bible, book by book, chapter by chapter. And one of the great challenges, but one of the great blessings of that, of course, is that it does mean that we, we come to parts of the Bible that we might otherwise shy away from if we had a choice. But it's a good thing that we do this. These are the words of God's to us. And the less familiar parts of God's word, in fact, the, the hard to understand parts of God's word, even the hard to accept parts of God's word, are often the most rewarding. Because here is something we don't understand. Here is something that we can grow in. Here is something about our God that we have not yet grasped. And so really, here is an invitation that we cannot refuse. It's an invitation to hear the voice of our God speaking to us, helping us to make sense of our world, of our lives, of our church, helping us to live in a way that is best for us, and pleases God who made us and who saved us. And so as we come to this topic of heads and headship and head coverings, I have three headings for you, pun very much intended. Uh, first of all, I want to talk to you about the principle. What's the principle that underlines everything that Paul has to say in this chapter? And I think verse 3 is the key. And then second of all, what's the practice? What's the, the instruction that comes from that principle that Paul gave to the Corinthian church 2,000 years ago. And then lastly, I want to ask us the, the obvious question, how do we put this principle into practice now, in what feels like a very different time in a very different place from the Corinthian church 2,000 years ago? The principle, the practice, how do we put the principle into practice now? That's what I want to talk about. So please do keep your Bibles open to, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Firstly, then, the principle. Verse 3, as I said, is the basis of everything that Paul has to say in this passage. So come with me and look very carefully at it. Let me read it to you. Verse 3. 
But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, wonderful verse 3 is quite clear. There is a principle that is at the very heart of the nature of reality, a principle of order, and even a form of hierarchy that flows from God to Christ to man to woman. And even to use the word head is to imply authority and even leadership on one hand and submission on the other. And now the idea that every Christian man submits to Christ is not new to us. And it makes sense. And the idea that man is the head of woman is uncomfortable to us. And we'll get to that in a moment. But perhaps the strangest part of verse 3 is the submission of Christ to his heavenly Father. That's not something that we often talk about very often, is it? It's not something that we think about very much. And it is the clear picture that we get when we read the gospel stories of Jesus' life, when we see his interactions with his Father. We see his obedient submission to all that his Father asks of him. And in fact, it's a doctrine that Paul will go on to discuss in more detail in a few weeks' time when we reach 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul is at pains to say that the epilogue of history is the time when Christ will bring all things in perfect submission, even himself, under God his Father. But it's very helpful to us that Paul links all of these things together because it means that Paul reminds us of what submission is and isn't which is important in a world which is very confused about what it does and doesn't mean. Uh, Clearly, when the Bible teaches us that Jesus submits to his Father, we are not being told that Jesus is in any way somehow less than his Father or is inferior to his Father. Uh, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, says Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. And so we can't be being told that somehow the Father is more important than Jesus or even more valuable than Jesus. We're simply being told that this is the nature of their relationship. These are their roles. God is Father and Jesus the Son is the Son. And so Jesus willingly submits to his Father and surrenders none of his divine equality or even his divine dignity in the process. And so too, when a man submits to Christ, or when a woman does to a man in particular relationships, which again, we'll get to in a moment. It's not a lessening of worth, or of dignity, or even of identity to submit to another person. Nor does it suggest that one is more important or more valuable than the other. It does suggest that submission is something that we enter into willingly, and is not forced upon us. And I do hope you can see why this is very important. One of the reasons why 1 Corinthians 11 grates like kind of fingernails down a chalkboard to modern ears is because so often we are told today that when someone submits to someone else, particularly when a woman is asked to submit to a man, say in the relationship of marriage, that she is in fact being told that she is somehow less important than her husband and that she forsakes her dignity if she does so. But that is not what the Bible means when the Bible talks about headship and submission. 
That's not what the Bible means when it talks about the submission of the eternal Son of God to the eternal Father. God is the head of Christ in perfect unity. And Christ has been made the head of all men for their eternal benefit. And in certain relationships like marriage, man has even been made the head of a woman for their lifelong good. Now, in some ways, we do understand this. There are plenty of examples in our worlds of submission where there's no sense of inferiority or no sense of of different values. I was thinking about this this week. My parents are a really good example of this. Once upon a time, I did everything that my parents told me, some of the time, anyway. But now, actually, my parents obey me. Now that I'm all grown up, now that I've got children of my own, now my parents do what I ask them to do. When I say, please stop feeding the children lollies and cake, they sometimes stop feeding the children lollies and cake. When I I tell them, please stop letting them watch television, they sometimes stop the children. You know, but they do, they do obey me when it comes to my kids, they listen to me. Was I less than my parents when I obeyed them? No, of course I wasn't. Are my parents less than me now that they obey me? Well, it's their right to indulge their grandchildren. That's the right of every grandparent. But no, they're not less than me now that they they listen to me about how they should look after my kids. I mean, the thing is, I even submit to things that are less than me. I submit to traffic lights. That's just a a machine that's a post that sticks out of the ground. But I do everything that it says. When it's red, I stop. When it's green, I, I go. When it's yellow, I go faster. I do everything that traffic light tells me to do. Am I less than a traffic light? Certainly not. Is anyone in verse 3 less than anyone else? Christ is not less than God. And woman is not less than man. And even though we human beings, we are less than God and we are less than Christ, is that the way that he treats us? No, it's not. That's the very glory of the gospel. That even though we have fallen so far short of the glory of God, how does he treat us? God sends his one and only son to die for us so that our sins might be forgiven, so that we might be washed clean, so that we might be embraced and adopted as one of God's children, so that even now as God looks upon us, he does not see us, but he sees his children and he loves us as he does his only beloved son. And so if you want to understand what headship looks like, verse 3 says, look to Christ. Did you notice how awkwardly verse 3 is worded? Uh, This one's been triggering my OCD all week as I've been working on this passage. I'm sure there is a a much simpler way of spelling out verse 3. Just kind of spell it out for us, Paul. Why do you have to word it so awkwardly? Uh, But actually, Paul deliberately words it that way So that Christ is at both the beginning and the end of the verse. Because what he's trying to show us is that Christ is the model that we are to imitate. Just as he reminded us in verse 1. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Christ is the example to us of what headship looks like both as men and as women. In verse 3, Paul is calling on both men and women to emulate Christ in their relationships. So, how do I learn to be a man in a relationship with a woman? Paul says, look to Christ. Read again the gospel story. See how he treats other people. See how he loves for them and cares for them. See how he puts their needs before his own. 
See how he sacrifices for them. So much so that he even sacrifices his, his life for them. Always putting the interests of others before himself. Never expecting to be served, but always serving. That's the example of Christ ruling, being the head of his people. No place for domineering in the way that Jesus treats his people. No place for selfishness. No place for, for superiority. And certainly no place for violence or for abuse. Quite the opposite. Christ lays down his life for his church to shield her from the violence of sin and death. But how do you learn how to be a woman in relationship with a man? And again, Paul is saying, look to Christ. Look to Christ in his relationship with his father. Look at how Jesus listens to and respects and loves his father. Submitting to his will willingly and sacrificially, even when it's not necessarily what he wants to do. Remember Jesus in, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus very clearly has preferences about what's supposed to happen next. And he's even willing to share that with his father. But yet he still says, not my will be done, but yours. And see how Christ does all of this without any lessening of his sense of self or any lessening of his worth or his dignity or his identity as a person. If you want to understand what headship really looks like as a man or as a woman, Christ is our example, says verse 3. Now, of course, verse 3 speaks only very generally. And uh, the broad principle of, of headship in relationships gets spelt out a few other times in this chapter. Uh, the basic principle is there in, in verse 7, reiterated using the language of glory. Uh, and then in verses 8 and 9, it's talked about again in terms of the very order of creation uh, that we read again in Genesis chapter 2. Man was created first, and then out of man came woman. And she was formed by God as a helper for him. Again, a title that lacks no dignity from a biblical point of view. And once again, Paul is reminding us that this is the way that God has stitched together the fabric of our universe, the fabric of our world, the fabric of our relationships. And it was good, and it was good back in Genesis 2, before sin, before the fall of Genesis chapter 3. And we could talk much more about this, this principle of headship and what it means. But really, to understand the principle of headship, particularly between men and women, we also need to understand how this principle works in practice. We need to understand how the Apostle Paul and indeed how the other authors of the New Testament apply this principle to the life of God's people. It's a very important part of actually understanding any principle fully to, to see how it is applied, how it works out in practice. Uh, because this principle on its own is far too easy to abuse. This principle on its own, even with all the defences that verse 3 tries to build into it, is just too easy for us to take and to use as a weapon to inflict pain upon each other. It is a good gift from God, given for our benefit, given for our blessing. But like all good gifts of God, sinful humanity, and in particular sinful men, can always find ways to corrupt and to abuse it. And so even as we think about this principle and as we think about how we apply it, 
we must be deeply aware of our own capacity for sin, our own capacity to corrupt the goodness of God, our own capacity to be lazy Bible readers, and to take a, a verse like this and slap it over selfish practices, practices that are horrific to God, to justify sexism and misogyny of the worst sorts, even violence and abuse towards women. And where we see that, we need to call it out. We need to hold each other accountable. And we need to guard each other against it. We need to talk about this. Because we cannot be so naive as to think that such things do not happen in a church like ours. Because such things have happened in our church. And such things will happen in our church. And such things are happening in our church now. Yes, even our church. And so we must be very, very careful about these verses. And so how does the Apostle Paul apply this principle? And I think it's very important to see that the Apostle Paul is quite restrained in the application of this principle of male headship. Have a look again at verse 3, just for the, for the last time. Look at it again. The head of every man is Christ, says Paul. But does that mean that the head of every woman is man? And the answer is no, it doesn't. That's not what verse 3 says. It just says that the the head of woman is man. It does not say that all men are to submit, sorry, all women are to submit to all men. And so there actually are a whole lot of questions that come out of, of this principle that we could ask. A whole lot of questions that are left unanswered in this passage and indeed unanswered by the rest of the New Testament. Does this mean that men should open the door for women? Does this mean mean that men are always supposed to pay on dates? Uh, Does this mean that uh, women and children get to go first into the lifeboats while the ship is sinking? Uh, Does this mean that uh, only men can be managers and the CEOs of of companies and and organizations? Does this mean that women shouldn't join the armed forces or or, or shouldn't lead nations? Well, the truth is that the Bible seeks to answer none of these questions and nor should we try to from a principle like this. The way the Bible applies the principle of verse 3 is actually very restrained and so should we be. We certainly cannot go beyond what is written. And so the New Testament applies this principle in two main ways, as best as I can see. It applies this principle very commonly to the relationship of marriage, a husband and a wife. And you can see passages like that in Ephesians 5 or Colossians 3 or even 1 Peter chapter 3. And the New Testament also applies this principle to leadership in the church, who teaches and who has authority in places like 1 Timothy 2 and 3. And this context here in in 1 Corinthians 11, it seems to be connected to that second one. Uh, The context here, I think, is what happens in church or or what happens when, when Christian people gather together, particularly to pray and to prophesy. That's what's mentioned in verses 4 and 5 of this chapter. Uh, And what happens when God's people gather together is the big theme, really, of 1 Corinthians 11 to 14, really, this this whole kind of section. Uh, Now, uh, so I think it's it's clear that Paul is imagining moments like this, moments like when we do uh, gather together as his people and and do church together. Uh, But I'm equally sure that Paul is also imagining all the other moments when we gather together as Christian brothers and sisters to pray and to prophesy. 
I'm sure he's imagining our, our small groups, our hub groups on Wednesday nights when we get together. I'm sure he's imagining uh, Christian university groups, CUs, as they gather together on campuses. I'm sure he's imagining times when we go on, on Christian camps or in any, almost any scenario you can imagine where we gather as Christian people to pray and to prophesy. That's what he's talking about. Any occasion where we gather together in the name of the Lord to speak God's word to each other for mutual encouragement, because that is what prophecy is, uh, to cut to the conclusion of a conversation we'll have in a few weeks' time when we get to 1 Corinthians 14. So what are Paul's instructions? Well, uh, verse 4, to men, he says, don't cover your heads. Verse 4, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, that is Christ. Now, Paul wants men to look different from women from the appearance of women when we gather, to acknowledge the headship that verse 3 describes. And for man to pray or prophesy with a head covered, Paul says, is dishonouring to Christ. A covered head is a bad thing. And that instruction is repeated in verse 7. But when Paul speaks to women, the opposite instruction is given. Verse 5, but when women pray, who pray, sorry, But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. Now it's clear later on in verse 15 that at this time long hair was ideal for a woman and short hair was a disgrace. And that's why Paul says that if a woman prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, then it's just as if she had a a shaved head. It's the same sort of shame that is brought upon her and brought upon her head, as verse 3 describes. And so just as a man dishonours Christ, who is head over him by having his head covered, so too a woman dishonours the man who is her head when she prays with a head uncovered. Now, here we hit one of the biggest problems in this passage. I told you it was difficult and complex. Uh, and the problem is, who are we actually talking about when we say man and woman in 1 Corinthians 11? Uh, in the Bible that we read tonight, the NIV translation, it does say man and woman, but I'm aware that some people might be uh, sitting there with different translations. And in some of those different translations, uh, particularly if you have the ESV in front of you, it instead says not woman but wife and not man but husband. And that is because unlike English, the ancient Greek language that this letter was written in doesn't actually have separate words for women and wives and for men and husbands. Uh, They just have one feminine word and one masculine word and it could mean either depending on the context. Uh, So in this passage, the word for woman could mean wife and the word for man could mean husband. And how we understand these words actually makes a big difference to the way that we interpret this passage and understand it. Is Paul addressing all men and all women? Or is he just addressing the part of the congregation that are married? Uh, Now, at one level, to those of us who are married, it almost doesn't really make any difference. But uh, Paul has already said back in 1 Corinthians 7 that there's a lot of single people in the church of Corinth. I don't think that he's forgotten about them now. Uh, And I'm not convinced that what Paul is saying here is limited to just the the married people in the congregation. 
I understand why people go there. It is the most common way that a headship is applied in the New Testament. But to make 1 Corinthians 11 about husbands and wives, you actually have to introduce some extra pronouns that just aren't there in the original language. And there isn't anything in the passage itself that makes me think that marriage is in view. But there are lots of things in the passage that make me think that we are talking about when men and women gather together, like for church. What is significant is that Paul assumes that women will exercise this kind of ministry in a mixed congregation. Paul assumes that women will pray, that women will prophesy, and that they will do so publicly and that it will be good for everyone. But Paul is also keen that when they do so, there's a a visible difference from the men. Uh, Paul seems to recognize that the moment of public prayer and public prophecy is also a moment of potential confusion. And so in the moment when both men and women are are gathered and we're quietly listening and we're, we're quietly praying, Paul wants there to be no doubt that whoever is speaking and leading is honoring their respective head as they do it. And so I've got to say, I strongly suspect that the man a woman honours as she engages in that moment of public prayer or public prophecy are actually the male leaders of the church that she is a part of, the elders or the pastor or the minister, whatever word you want to use. She visibly honours them by what she wears on her head, even as she encourages all through the ministry that she is performing. And be it in a church setting or be it in another ministry setting, that's what she's doing. But please do notice Paul's qualification on all of this in verses 11 to 12. Even as he talks about women honouring the the, the male pastor or the male leader who is their head in this context, they do so in no way that makes them inferior to that man. Verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Yes, while it is right that wives submit to husbands, and it is right for women in church to submit to their pastor, it's also right that those men always remember their place. They're not independent of women. They too are dependent upon women. No man could ever be born without the essential role of a woman in that process. And so women should never feel any sort of insecurity as if they're less valuable in God's world than their male counterparts. In fact, in the church, Paul says, we all come from God. And that is the great leveler. And along the way, actually, we need each other. We're dependent upon each other. So there's Paul's instruction to us. Men and women should look different especially when exercising public ministry in a a Christian gathering. Men should honour Christ by leaving their heads uncovered. And women should honour the one who is their head, the leader or the pastor, by covering their heads with some sort of scarf or veil or shawl. And that's what Paul expects them to do. That's the, the practice that Paul draws out from this principle that he's given them. But the question for us, of course, is, Should that be ours? How do we put this principle into practice now? Because we do want to do so, don't we? 
We do want to do this. We do want to actually apply God's Word to our life. We don't want to be like some people who look at this and read just something of historical curiosity, something that was relevant to Corinth 2,000 years ago, but has no relevance to us today. We don't want to be like that because of what we actually do believe about God's Word. That all Scripture is God-breathed, God-spirited, and useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness so that the person of God might be built up for every good work. The Bible, every page of it, is useful to us as we seek to live lives to God's glory. And so I'm always inclined to believe that every part of the Bible is relevant to us today. And it's for this reason that I'm suspicious of any interpretation uh, that confines the implication of a, of, a, of a passage to just the original setting, to just that back then and not here now. And so to accept that this is a teaching that was relevant to them, but not to us, I would actually need some pretty convincing arguments from the text itself for that to be the case. But what I do want to say is, I think there is some evidence of that in the text today. You'll notice I haven't spoken about verses 13 to 16 yet. I haven't forgotten about them, I know they're there. But have a look at verse 13. Uh, Paul says, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? Judge for yourself, says Paul. Make up your own minds. Use your own wisdom. But if I am to judge for myself, when I hear him say that for a man to have long hair, it is a disgrace, or for a woman to have long hair, it's her glory, my response is, I'm not sure about that, actually. If I am to judge for myself, I'm not sure that's the way that things kind of really are anymore. My first reaction is not to, to see that this is exactly the way that things ought to be. When I think about the world that I live in, when I think about our, our attitudes today, it's not obvious to me that that's the case. Now, yes, I know that some people do make very strong statements about who they are and, and what they believe by the way that they wear their hair and even the way that they dress themselves. But in general, it doesn't seem to me that somehow short hair on a woman is unnatural or that long hair on a man is unnatural. I'm still undecided about man buns. <laughs> and mullets are always wrong. <laughs> Let me be clear about that. But I'm, I'm, I'm inclined to think that actually, if I am to use my own judgment, as verse 13 suggests, then I'm inclined to think that this argument has lost a little of its power with the passing of time. Verse 16 is the same. It's just not true that this is the only practice in the churches anymore. Uh, that might have been a very powerful argument back then. But now as I look around at churches, as I look around at good churches, churches that love the Bible, churches that want to listen to God's Word, churches that think it is relevant to our life today, uh, most of them, they don't have women wearing head coverings in church. Now, having said all this, I, I want to acknowledge... I could very well be wrong, and I probably am. Maybe all of us churches together have collectively got it wrong. And perhaps nature is actually very, very clear, and it's just my sense of aesthetics that has gone wrong. But the truth is, 
there are plenty of reasons in this passage why these truths are relevant and always relevant to us. Paul's other reasons are not based in any way in the culture of the day. Uh, When he argues about the order of headship that God has stitched into the very fabric of creation, he argues it was there in the beginning. When we read verse 3 and 7 and 8 and 9, we're dealing with a much more universal argument. Paul is saying that his instruction doesn't merely flow from the practices of the day or our instinctive reactions to people's haircuts, but these instructions flow from God and how he has made our world to be. And so while I would say that there are some aspects of the world today that are uniquely cultural and, and, and you know, parts of this passage that do seem to be rooted in that day, it's not possible to just dismiss this passage as a merely historical curiosity. We have to wrestle with the enduring implications of these verses. We live in the world that verse 3 has created, where the head of every man is Christ and where the head of the woman is a man in different relationships and the head of Christ is God. And for that reason, these verses must have some relevance to us today. It would be irresponsible for us to imagine that they do not apply to us now. And so I guess at its simplest, one thing to say is this. When we gather, the men should look like men and the women should look like women. At its simplest, that's what this seems to be saying, that the men should look like men and the women should look like women in culturally appropriate ways. And of course, in that day, it meant one thing. And in our day, well, actually, it means that we have an awful lot of freedom. We all understand the the, the different cues. We all understand kind of what that means, uh, instinctively at least. But at its simplest, that's what this passage seems to be saying to us. But as to the deeper issue of headship and head coverings, well, that's kind of much harder. That's another level to this passage, isn't it? Because I'm not sure that it's easy to wholeheartedly endorse the practice that 1 Corinthians 11 teaches when it comes to head coverings. 1 Corinthians 11 speaks of the good order of relationships in God's world, the submission to authority in a relationship of equality and even of interdependence. And I'm not convinced that head coverings actually convey that anymore in our worlds. I think that the influence of Islam and the misappropriation of passages like this have left a bad taste in our mouths when it comes to women covering their heads. And we'll see head coverings more as a sign of subservience and inequality rather than a visual reminder of authority within a relationship of equal worth and dignity. Now, yes, of course, it's true that if a woman was to get up in church next week and to put a a scarf over her head before she began to pray or before she began to read the Bible or do anything else in church, we would understand exactly what it is that she was saying. And let me just say to you, if, if that is what you want to do, if that is where your conscience takes you, then I will not criticize you for it. But at the same time, nor will I request it of anyone. And I understand that this passage is concerned not just for the reality of the principle, which is important and we must apply to our lives, but also for how that principle is visibly seen amongst us. It's asking for us to have a symbol. But I'm really struggling hard to think of a visible symbol in our culture that symbolises the uniqueness 
of what 1 Corinthians 11 is saying. And a big part of the problem here is we're just not a very symbolic culture anymore. We just kind of don't really do symbols much in our worlds. Uh, And there's very few symbols, especially when it comes to the relationship between men and women. Now, we have a few within marriage, you know, know, wedding rings, I think they're a good thing. I even think that a bride taking her husband's surname is a good thing as well. They do, in the context of marriage at least, express a joyful acceptance of God's pattern. But how do you express a joyful acceptance of God's pattern? How do you symbolise that in church? Because that's really what Paul is, is getting at here. And I suspect that in the absence of a cultural symbol for this, we're actually going to have to do the harder thing. We're actually going to have to work harder at modelling the reality of those symbols. Uh, Those symbols that Corinth found so easy, we're going to have to do the much harder thing of of actually asking tough questions. What does our conduct, what does our behaviour say about our identity and our relationships? How might our our behaviour, how might even what we wear, even the way we do our hair, how might that bring honour or shame to our heads, as verse 3 instructs us? How might we be affirming or even undermining of the roles that God has given us from the beginning? And we're going to have to ask that, uh, not just in our life together as a church, but we're even going to have to keep asking that in our marriages as well. We have to live out the principles of this chapter and we have to embody them and do so even more consciously and even more vocally than the Corinthians ever had to do. We have to live out our acceptance and even our joy of our God-given place in his universe. Precisely because we can't just simply signify this with a, with a head covering or some other visible sign or or symbol. And we need to do so even as our world becomes more and more critical of the way we do things. And even as other churches become more and more critical of the way we do things. What we certainly cannot do is remove the distinctions between men and women in our church. Instead, we need to learn the goodness of those distinctions in our life together and express them when we meet together for prayer and for prophecy and we need to even lovingly embrace them in our marriages and we need to do so not just for our sake it is for us but it's not just for us we also need to do it because of the angels remember verse 10 you didn't think I'd forgotten about verse 10 did you You didn't think I was going to put up with every single person coming to me and asking me about angels all all night, did you? Very strange verse, verse 10. Very strange verse. But Paul has already mentioned the angels once before in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9. And there, Paul talked about how his ministry and the fruit of his ministry, which is the church of God, the body of Christ, all that he is doing is seen by the whole universe by both men and also by angels, by the the spiritual powers that are above. Angels watch what we build when we build the body of Christ. Angels watch what we do in church. The whole universe is witnesses, is, is looking on to see 
this incredible thing that God is doing as he reconciles sinful human beings back to him through Jesus Christ. The whole universe watches as we reorder our relationships around that gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we return to submit to him in our different relationships. The whole universe is watching, even the angels. And so living this out in our life together, it's not just for our sake. It is, but it's not just us. It's all those who watch on to see the work that Christ is doing amongst us. And so even though I don't have all the answers today, and even though this sermon almost feels like the beginning of a conversation and not the end of one, we do need to keep hearing these words. The invitation of God to hear his voice and to live well. To know that these words are good and they help us to live in a way that is best for us and that pleases the God who made us and who saved us. We need to keep working and thinking and talking together as men and women about how this works in our lives and how this works in our church. And so let me pray that we would do that. Heavenly Father, Lord, give us grace as we wrestle with all these things and help us to do it with great humility. Help us to be led by your spirit, Lord, in in gracious fellowship with one another as, as men and women as we talk about all of these things. Help us, Lord, to search your truth and to always be ready to obey all that you say. Help us to trust you and to trust your goodness so that we can do this without fear, even though where it leads us might be hard. And please, Lord, give us wisdom with all these difficult issues. Please, Lord, help us to see clearly what remains unclear. Help us to have an unfaltering willingness to to listen to each other, Lord, to be willing to hear each other and each other's struggles with passages like this. But above all, Lord, we pray that you would help us to listen to your voice and hear what you have to say. And we ask it for the sake of the angels and in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord.